0: Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. I have the incredible Samantha Rogers on today. She's the co-founder and principal at Relate Social Capital in the sports and philanthropy space. Sam does some super cool stuff with the intersection of sports and philanthropy and I am just grateful to be in her presence. Um, it's We both work in the Olympic space too so it's really fun. We're both kind of pushing for the same things and it was very interesting we recorded this right around the time the olympics were canceled or postponed so it's um definitely an interesting conversation and just kind of how her career path went what she's done and how she's done it i'm again just really grateful that i get the opportunity to talk to people like sam so i hope you guys enjoy our conversation see all right yep we're recording all right today i have samantha rogers co-founder and principal at relate social capital previously formerly development and alumni relations at mcgill athletics sam's a pretty cool person we got connected i don't even know how long ago through alicia powell her podcast episodes are already up so you can go check that one out but uh, i get to talk to sam today same thing sports and philanthropy thanks for hanging out with me sam i appreciate it
1: happy to be here thanks for having me
0: the pleasure is all mine. We were supposed to do this in person, I think right around today or tomorrow, but obviously there's some stuff yeah, going actually. on. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're here now, uh, a couple hundred miles apart, quarantined together, yet apart. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get through this. So Sam, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is why do you love sports so much?
1: I love sports because of the feeling. I think is the easiest answer. Um, I've always been the one that cries at those cheesy Olympic commercials and our families always loved the Olympics. I think I have a piece from as far back as I can remember, like one of the, you know, Team Canada pieces. Our mom always bought them for us every time there was an Olympics. And so I've just always loved that. Sports always been in my life. As I've always um, played, not that well and forever, but um, I always played, and just our family is a pretty athletic family. I'm from Montreal, and uh, the Montreal Canadiens are a, l- a religion here. Um, we always argue, I think, back and forth about English and French in Montreal, but if you're a Habs fan, you're a Habs fan. So that's just kind of the the, the place I've been brought up in. And, and so, um, so yeah, so it's really just the feeling, I think, is, is the best part, and, and how it brings people together.
0: It brings people together sometimes mm-hmm. separates them a little bit but i know what you're saying and you know it. it is it's yeah, all about like, those We don't emotions. like
1: bruins if you're a bruins fan you're you're not welcome in our city so in I'm, some ways I'm it, cool it, with that. It, it works
0: <laughs> being here in the new york new jersey area um you know we hate boston too don't worry so we all can be fans of that but um don't hate them as much as philly though can't hate anybody as much as yeah philly. Fair, no.
1: fair 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 <laughs>
0: um but no i i totally agree the emotions that come with sports there's nothing like it in my opinion it, it is I ride high and I ride low if my teams win or if they lose. So it's, mm-hmm. it's always interesting how something that I have literally zero impact on can affect me and my life so much. But I love it. I love Miles. every second of it.
1: Yep, exactly. exactly. It's so
0: crazy. Um, and yeah, I guess being in Canada, hockey, man, like what what can you relate hockey to, I guess, here in the United States? Like it's more than football, right? It's more, is it like soccer hooligans in Europe kind of thing?
1: Uh, I'd say probably football is a a pretty good comparison Uh, we don't have obviously NFL teams here we have a few NFL players but we um, we're just a hockey country I mean everyone's obsessed everyone plays everyone's kids play uh, and um, have a good little rivalry even between our Canadian teams in in some cases so um, but it's pretty intense and but you know but then again I'm I wouldn't even know. I, I would say that I wish we even had more of a culture around it, like the tailgating and things like that. But it's more so just it's everywhere.
0: That's so. awesome. And yeah, tailgating is the best. I will I will say that. Um, but <laughs> I've yeah, never no, been I mean, one
1: yet. you've never been to a tailgate? No, I'm waiting. I'm waiting.
0: Oh my goodness. I'm hoping
1: it's going to happen in the fall because one of my former student athletes just won the Super Bowl with the Chiefs. So Whoa. I need to get down there and I need to participate in a tailgate. Heck,
0: who was that? Who was the gentleman on the Chiefs?
1: Laurent Duvernay Tardif. He's a doctor. I don't oh know my if you've gosh. Heard about this story.
0: I did not. Please tell me.
1: No. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, you have to, um, I'll have to send you some links. He's a, he's a doctor, so he was um, drafted to the Chiefs when I was there around 2014, and he still stayed in medical school, so he was the first doctor um, to ever play in the NFL, and then just won the school.
0: That's incredible. Oh my goodness.:
1: Yeah, yeah He's, uh, you know, not the highest achiever, of course. He's written a book, he sails, he's a carpenter. A doctor
0: everything. don't look, let's <laughs> never forget medical doctor i'm assuming right
1: yeah yeah so Jeez. he's he's awesome he's uh and it's great now because he gets to participate a lot of the in the player safety in the in the nfl and actually be able to um speak on behalf of of athletes because he has won and still playing so
0: that's amazing well shout out to that guy i can't say his name as you just said it
1: they call him larry i think in uh in kansas city
0: is it, it the way you said it was a little bit prettier? I ha, I do have to say it's, that. You but. know what?
1: It's a long name, but it's a long name, so I get it.
0: It's, that it's is lot. still so cool. And and shout out. Um. Yeah. I mean, I've never. You, you know, Super Bowls here, especially in the United States, obviously, it's there's nothing like it. It was amazing. Good game too. But that is so cool that you had that that kind of personal connection with somebody there. And yeah, hopefully. Have him take you to a game man I mean the tailgates oh, are pretty we, I f- pretty know. fun
1: I know we've been talking about it we all want to go down our little you know football booster club from McGill. so we're hopefully everything kind of works out and we can get down there
0: I'll cross my fingers I, I'll cross my fingers for that but also just hopefully everything <laughs> kind of goes back to normal and exactly. and um yeah you you bring up the Olympics you bring up hockey there's so much stuff in Canada and you know it's just so cool and I guess again I don't like to keep you know I want to kind of keep these positive I want to kind of keep you know the story around you but I do think it's interesting, you know, you working with the Olympics in some capacity with some of these NGBs. What was it like when Canada came out and pretty much they were the first domino essentially to say like, oh. hey, we're not gonna go whether it's there or not. Like, how did, how did that make you feel, you know, going back to sports and, and something so big? What, what was that like kind of being Canadian and, and kind of having that pride?
1: Uh, it's funny. Actually, I got goosebumps as soon as you said that it's um, it was interesting as I was following the news and I saw that USA Swimming and uh, track came out saying, you know, really pushing. And I thought, OK, this is this is kind of the first step. And I knew there were some things percolating below the surface because I had been working on a side project. We were actually trying to get some of our alumni who participated in the 1980 Olympics that Canada boycotted, um, we we're trying to get them to connect with our current national team athletes in such a way that there's not really that many people that can understand what these athletes are going through other than the ones who missed out on the games in 1980. So we've been working on that in the background and then a um, new something was coming down the pipeline. To be honest, I was, I was a little bit shocked that they took such a stance because we're always known as the country that's just kind of nice. and And, and I was really surprised that we were the first ones to, Um, stand up for that. There's a new CEO that's, that's heading up the Canadian Olympic Committee and he's been, he's been incredible. And so I'm really proud of, of what we did. And, and I think it just took one to start that domino effect. And, you know, it happened so late at night that I almost didn't want to go to sleep because I wanted to see what other countries were going to come afterwards and how quickly they would move. And, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible because it it happened um, quite quickly and, 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 it's funny is now always, you know, Dick Pound's Dick Pound is always in the news and he was the first he kind of came out the next day. Mm-hmm. And so Dick Pound's actually a McGill guy. Um, and he's from Montreal. And so we always kind of love looking at what he's saying because he, he always the way that he moves about in in the space, um, you know, he was the one that started the conversation even a couple of months ago, highlighting the fact that if we don't really see any changes by May we might have to change and then it very quickly became apparent that um, it's really difficult on athletes right now because of the uncertainty and and so many qualifiers have been cancelled you know there was a a canoe kayak qualifier that's been cancelled and that was supposed to happen in Georgia um, in April and so when things like that start happening, it makes it very difficult and stressful on on athletes. And and so I'm glad that we were able to come out way ahead and much before May to alleviate that stress that now there's no uncertainty. We know, it's just not happening. It will happen Mm -hmm. later on.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's such a weird uh, dynamic. And you know, people have been coming out. And and yeah, you're right, you know, that uh, Dick Pound came out a couple like, a month and change ago, and he was like, "Guys, like, oh. we might not be able to do this." And everyone was like, "Nah, you're crazy." And I was one of those people. <laughs> I was like, "There is a zero point zero percent chance this doesn't happen." And then only a few short weeks later, it was there's a zero percent chance that this uh-huh. does happen. It, it's crazy uh-huh. how quickly everything changed. Um, and yeah, I i kind of didn't even like put two and two together until we got on here to talk, you know, and realize, you know, Canada was essentially the first country that dropped out, and it was crazy because earlier that day, if I'm not mistaken, the IOC was like. We'll give it four weeks like we'll we'll see mm-hmm. we'll kind of just like run around yeah. it and then canada was like now nah, we're out and then australia's well, now nah, we're week. out
1: yeah four and weeks then all of a, a sudden. long time it's it's a long time um for the athletes you know of course some of some of our athletes spoke up and and uh it's been interesting the dialogue that's happened because and i and i completely understand where they're coming from where they're worried and saying why are you making that decision for for us you Know why can't we just go and then come back and, and self quarantine? And and so it, it, it brought up a lot of dialogue, but I'd say the majority of athletes were really out of the stance. And I think for a lot of us, you know, the writing's on the wall because we weren't, we surely weren't going to be the only ones. And you know, the conversation was, how could we possibly think it's fair to expect Italy to be able to field a team or Spain to be able to field a team or, you know, so there's things that you have to consider that it's just not the timing is is really difficult and and the whole idea of the Olympic movement is to bring people together and you know, this would almost completely go against that in, mm-hmm. in some
0: ways. So, yeah, I mean, for the last couple of weeks, we've all told each other, don't see each other, right? This mm-hmm. like stay at home. <laughs> it's the total opposite again. And, you know, it's going to go on for a little while. So it's it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I don't want to spend too, too much time there, but I definitely just kind of wanted to, to, to understand kind of how you're feeling about it again and uh, see. So I know, so let, let's go back to you a little bit. Thank you for that. I really do appreciate it. And as you said, uh, this might be the perfect segue, because as you said, Dick Pound was actually a McGill guy Um, Mm. and you've kind of been in sports and philanthropy in some capacity for a while now, obviously with what you're doing, but also kind of what you were doing at McGill. So I guess, what is it about, you know, as I said, you know, what do you love so much about sports? What do you love so much about philanthropy?
1: Well, it's funny. I actually, um, the working in the charitable sector was my career path. I, uh, very quickly, I, you know, when I graduated from my, um, with my BCom. I was supposed to actually work in, in, for Tommy Hilfiger, which is a complete <laughs> opposite route. Um, I very quickly realized, you know, when they were setting me all up to, to, to work at their head office, that uh, it caused me a lot of anxiety. And it just hit me that I'm going to have to, you know, work nine to five for some man I don't even know, making the profits off of all of us. And it just didn't feel good uh and then i was able to really luckily work with a professor who long story short ended up uh, helping me find a program in fundraising management in toronto and so i went there and realized you know i could i could take my business skills and and work for a charity and and that was uh, really important to me i had always grown up that way my my grandfather in particular um was the vp of an insurance company and i always call him like the og corporate philanthropist he was always uh, bringing his employees, working at different, um, uh, food banks and, and shelters and things like that. As soon as I was old enough to hold a ladle, that was kind of, you know, where he would take us on the weekends. So I just always grew up in that space and to realize I could make a career out of it. Um, it worked really well. I interned at Covenant House, which is a youth shelter, um, and very near and dear to my heart. And, It was kind of my first work experience. And when I was there, um, you know, being able to show up every day and see the youth, knowing that if we don't raise $18 million a year, these kids don't have a place to sleep. So that was the impact that I was looking for. And um, what I joke about now, because sport philanthropy is so niche, is that even someone like myself who was enamored by sports and grew up so passionate about sports and grew up so passionate about philanthropy, never knew I could put the two together and um even i volunteered at the vancouver olympics still never realized there i i I just kind of had come to the conclusion i would never really have a career in sports because i had made my career in in the charitable sector and um love vancouver so much i stayed there for a couple of years working in health research and that's when mcgill um, came calling suggesting that i was one of the only people they knew that you know, had a background in sport per se, and also knew how to raise money and work in the charitable sector. And, and that's how I um, came back to Montreal to work at McGill Athletics. And I always sort of highlight the fact that I n- was not interested in the job. To me, it was a way back home to Montreal. And uh, I had never wanted to work for a university. And I had specifically said, you know, why do I want to go raise money for rich kids at a university? And I think it took a couple of days that I realized I had it all along and, and realized that I had really, really found um, what I was most passionate about was actually sport philanthropy.
0: And so I guess with with that job specifically, you know, what, what were you doing if you were not, you using your words, raising r- money for rich kids?
1: <laughs> well, what had happened was, unlike the U.S. where, you know, the athletics department is raising almost most of the m- money for the universities, um, mcgill didn't have any program so what i like to do is build things and fix things so my whole role was to actually go in and build a development and alumni program and i kind of again saw it i'll be in and out in 18 months i'll go in i'll build something and then i'll leave and right away when i got in there and started speaking to the coaches and speaking to the student athletes i was realizing that we had so many kids who you know they're the first person in their family to go to school and sorry to get a to go to university and that was because of a scholarship that they received because of their athletic skill um you know we had kids who their teams were their families because there was no one left in their family or you know they were having to stay at the coaches there's so many different stories about how sport really transformed their lives and however that they got to this athletics department um and it was incredible. And I loved, I just loved working with the people. I loved working with the coaches. I loved working with the alumni and the students and it brought back, you know, again, that feeling that I love about sport is that even though, um, you know, the 1987 national championship football team, you know, I was a toddler when they won, they still made me feel like I was part of the team and I'm still invited to their Christmas party. And I think that just goes to show the power of sports is that it's just so inclusive in a lot of ways that, um, it was great to be able to highlight that and and really be able to demonstrate the value to the rest of the university. Because in some ways, I think that they always saw us as, you know, the dumb jocks up on the mountain and why would I want to invest there when it's in reality, you know, what we just have a doctor who won the Super Bowl. So they're not dumb jocks up on the mountain and being able to really demonstrate the value of, of um, making sure that students... Are participating in whether it was recreational activities or on the varsity teams
0: that is awesome and yeah that's got to just be so much fun you know again just finding the two things that you essentially love the most like right outside Mm -hmm. of you know people and your family and being able to kind of intersect those um what what like what's that extra level uh or that extra layer of feeling you know as we were saying before sports brings this incredible feeling philanthropy brings another set of feelings like what is it like when you kind of layer those two things on top of each other to be able to see what you're capable of doing when you can get people excited about something as sports and give give them kind of the gift of giving through the, mm-hmm. through the side of it
1: well i love it because you know I'll say really quickly, I, as soon as I went and did my post-grad, I said, I'm never, I never want to ask somebody for money. That makes me feel gross. I don't want to ever put anyone back, anyone into a corner. And my professor said, if you're good at what you do, you'll never have to ask for a dime because people will just say, how can I be involved and how can I help? And for me, a lot philanthropy, I equate it with legacy because I think every single person wants to leave this earth with some kind of a legacy. Nobody just wants to say like, okay, I'm done and and take off. They want to have a legacy. And so I kind of see that as my role is, is what can I help you do? Do you want to have a scholarship named after you? Do you want to, you know, perpetually keep a student athlete in school? Do you want to be able to contribute, um, you know, as a mentor or what is it that you want to do that feels good and, and really helps you, you know, essentially teach people to have the feeling that I got from my grandfather. And that was a lot of the, the work that I got to do. Um, Even be able to teach the student athletes about philanthropy and, you know, everybody feels good when they give some, some, you know, when they give back or when they take care of something or they just give of themselves. So really just trying to promote that feeling in a way that's really natural and normal to them and not be, not push anything on them. So you know, you either are going to want to give to the hockey team or not, and I don't want to force you to do so. I just want to be able to say, "Hey, if you really want to have an impact and you're interested in hockey, this is one way that we could do it."
0: That's awesome, and that that is a good way. I mean, I'm a salesman, so I don't I don't mind asking people for money, but I, I know where you're coming <laughs> from, and it's definitely a, uh, it's a it's a it's a feeling. So over so the sports and philanthropy side is kind of fun, but as you were talking about before, like that eighteen million dollar number. That's a really big number and needing to raise that much money. I don't know if that's U.S. dollars or Canada dollars. I don't really know the difference, to be totally honest with you. Look, we got a smile. There we go. We're rolling again. Um, with, with that, like the stress of the philanthropy side, especially, you know, when you're at a, you know, a, a place like McGill and you know, there's, you know there's a very specific number where they're, you're at that, um, that shelter cool. for the children. How, how do you kind of handle, you know, again, you're doing something incredible. You're doing something so great. How do you handle that, the opposing, stressful side of all that?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, and I, I now that I think of it, because you brought this up, I don't really, you know, I always know that there's a goal, but I try not to focus on it that much because I think in my mind, I always just assume we'll hit it. And, you know, you always give yourself a stretch goal. Uh, charities too, typically, have reserves just in case something, you know, I don't know, like COVID-19 happens, Mm -hmm. for example. So I try not to stress on it because I don't like to always make it about money. And I think if you focus so much on the goal, then it almost becomes a sales feeling in the sense that I have to hit that goal. And if I don't, you know, I might lose my job or you know, worse or whatever it may be. And so I really try not to focus on that if it makes sense. You know, I know how you have to get there and I know the different um, sort of landmarks you want to be able to hit throughout the year. Um, but but yeah, I think focusing on, on, on the dollar amount really, donors can sense that when you know it's all about making money. And I think in some big fundraising shops, McGill was like that too. I mean, fortunately, I didn't, it wasn't like that for me, but a lot of people, you know, have their quotas that they have to hit and they have to make certain amount of phone calls and certain amount of meetings. And, and that really doesn't often translate very well to donors because they're seen as, you know, a checkbook and, and sometimes nothing else. And, and, and the thing is too, philanthropy is philanthropy itself really just means the love of humankind. So it's a lot more than the monetary side of it. And some, especially in sports, what I love is that it's sometimes equal or greater value to be able to give student athletes or Olympic athletes or whatever you may call them, uh, give them a job, give them an internship, mentor them, um, support them by coming to their games. So there's a lot of other ways that you can, you can support and be philanthropic rather than just writing a check.
0: That is awesome, and and thinking about it from that sense, I think is also very important because you're right. Um, no one first, no one wants to do business with someone that's desperate. That never works. Mm-hmm. If there's sharks, you know, blood mm-hmm. in the water. Sharks can smell that. Nobody really wants to do business with that person. And if you're coming at it again, as you said, looking at a donor as a checkbook, they're not going to be super interested in helping because then they're just looked at as money and i'm sure that there's much more as you said they can give including internships mentorship Uh their games just something super Uh easy like that um can be really helpful so i think that's great and yeah i just asked that question only because you know you brought up the the dollar amount before and like hey if we don't raise this 18 million dollars these kids aren't going to have a home and like that is that's intense like that is a lot Uh of pressure but it's (laughs) like you've been able to kind of put it off to That's the That's It's yes, good
1: motivation. It's good motivation too, right? It was, the, and like I said, it was the motivation I was looking for in my career to be able to have a goal like that annually.
0: I love it. And hey, you're, you're still here. You're still doing something. So I think
1: it's great. <laughs> I'm and still now, alive. Yeah. So, yes, so, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's a good
0: day to be alive, Sam. It's a good day to be alive. Um, so while at McGill, it seems like there was a little bit of an overlap between starting Relate Social Capital and what you were doing there, where was the spark? I mean, especially if you were having so much fun at McGill, where was the spark to say, hey, you know, I kind of want to kind of want to do this on my own. I want to do something, you know, a little different.
1: Well, it didn't take me long to realize that I developed a very unique skill set. The way I always described it was that, you know, everyone in athletics knew what my job entailed on the athletic side, but they didn't understand the development or fundraising, whatever you want to call it, fund development side. And then everybody on the fund development side didn't understand my job from the athletic side. So I often felt very isolated in that sense. Um, I ended up joining uh, NACTA, which is an American association. So I was down, it was kind of a bunch of like NCAA uh, people. And so when I started integrating myself more within that crowd and, and going down south you know, a couple times a year for that, I really started to notice that this was just such a very niche space. Um, but it ended up, it was all very much by chance. It was an old professor of mine uh, from from Humber College, where I did my postgrad in fundraising, contact me and say, Rowing Canada is looking for a fundraiser, and you're the only person I can think of so could you maybe help us out or would you be interested in this role? And, and I wasn't interested in the role, but when I looked at what they were trying to do, I realized that they were setting themselves up for failure. And that's really when I started to see that there was a greater opportunity and that while I loved what I was doing at McGill, that I would actually be able to go and um, help more sport organizations if I went out on my own. You know of course, being part of a big university you there ends up being some conflicts of interest, and I really wanted to be able to pull myself away from any of that and and, re- and be able to follow and pursue any opportunity that that kind of came up my way and, and really being able to do that under my own umbrella was was the best bet
0: I love it and it's actually really funny because my story um, I worked with u s rowing for a little while and uh, I guess oh, no I. Yep, worked with US Rowing for about seven, eight months. Incredible organization. And I got to work, um, not quite hand in hand or side by side, but I got to work closely with their Samantha Rogers, I guess, the person that helped with all their uh, fundraising.
1: Fundraising. They've got a great program. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: National Rowing um, Foundation, I think, or national. Yeah, something like that. Great people around. She's amazing um, doing what she does. And it's just so cool. I got to go to some of the events and just see what they were capable of putting Mm -hmm. together. Um, just with some phone calls and saying, Hey, you love rowing. We love rowing, you know, how how help you to help us, uh, you know, which was always really interesting. So I think that's cool. So when, um, so you started it while you were in McGill, when did you finally decide to say, Hey, like, you know what, we're we're jumping off the the cliff. Hopefully (laughs) there's a, a net down there that catches me.
1: It was almost exactly a year, I think maybe off a couple of days. So, um, I started with rowing and, uh, you know, again, like when you start peeling back the layers and realizing, okay, this is actually a thing. I didn't re—I didn't realize at the time that our NGBs, or we call them NSOs here, that that they were all technically able to raise money. So I, it took about a year to to really start to assess the environment and see that you know our idea was either nobody's thought of this or people have done this and it didn't work and we're idiots that are just jumping right in and it became kind of apparent after about a year that this was just something that people weren't really focused on and it was an opportunity for us um we we had secured athletics canada which was a really big client um going into our you know after our first year and so that's when when we decided to make that crazy leap and um stayed on i still stayed on and, and consulted a bit with mcgill i'd say for another 10 months even after that so um it was a nice uh, i guess a little bit of a cushion mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was still i mean i feel like and you would know the same that you're jumping off of a cliff every day is some, uh,
0: yeah that, somewhat
1: how entrepreneurship feels
0: pretty good point yeah i think a couple <laughs> days ago um I was ready to quit, and then yesterday, <laughs> as weird as it sounds, with the announcement that the Olympics will be postponed, I was like, "Wait, no, this is great. Let's look at this as a positive." And mm-hmm. uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's such a weird life. I'm not going to quit, of course. Um, it's just one of those things. I'm sure you felt it once or twice too. But absolutely, the, you know. So, so it's interesting how it came about. So, what? What? Explain what you guys figured out that like about the NSOs, as you said here, NGBs. What exactly did they not realize or what exactly did nobody else realize that you guys were able to kind of create the solution to a problem that, again, people didn't know existed really?
1: Well, a lot of them were formed, let's say, loosely in the 70s. And I find that the sports sector is almost about 20 years behind the art sector. And I'm talking on the charitable side of things. Mm -hmm. So when you look at an NSO you'll see that they, you know, are really great at governing the sport in the country. They, you know, have all their high performance and they have all their (laughs) volunteers. Yeah, it it can be very bureaucratic, especially like I said, because a lot of them are still operating from how they were created in the seventies. And when I looked at it and thought, okay, but there's nothing sustainable about your funding model because in Canada and in most countries outside of the U.S., they're all government funded. So I always equated to if you have a table with one leg, what happens if that goes away? You know, you always want to try to have as many legs as possible, so as, as many different revenue streams as possible. And on top of, you know, being able to get sponsorships or other corporate partnerships, you could be bringing in private funding, you could be bringing in grants, you should actually be trying to generate revenue to make yourself the most sustainable you can be. And uh, after my experience at McGill and seeing how well uh, alumni fit into the equation, I started asking that question myself, is that what happens to all these great athletes that win medals or compete for us and then they go off and why aren't they ever still involved with their organization like a university student athlete might be? And so I really wanted to be able to look at being able to develop alumni programs for them as well. So essentially what I was doing was just taking my college athletics model and then replicating it with our NSOs. That is super smart. Look at that. I love it. I I mean, (laughs) it's not, you know, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't breaking the mold on that one, but it, it was just something that had never really been done on there and before. And that's what's, what I, I believe that it should be going that way and as you'll see within other countries um it's starting to turn that way as well
0: and it you know you know when you hear something and you're like how does that not exist already you mm-hmm. know it's just like
1: one of those things <laughs> like
0: of course the people that were in the organization for the last however many years and and spent time there and received aid and all these other things of course they're going to want to help in some way shape, mm-hmm. or form. Right? Mm-hmm. it's not rocket science as you said you're not breaking yeah. them but it's just so weird sometimes people just don't put two and two together you know they, they see the answers for but they don't know where that other two comes from for some exactly.
1: reason exactly well um, and like I, I said I mean I had the parallels of sport and philanthropy in my life for years and it took a really long time for me to realize to put them together so I, I'm not really that surprised that people who haven't come up through the charitable sector would ever think to do that in their in their NSOs
0: and so so as you said before Pretty much every country outside of the United States, um, their NSOs. I'm assuming I'm gonna go out of Lynn. M NSO, National Sports Organization. Yes. Got it. Yes. All right. So or our some N-
1: are NSF, National Sport Federation, but NGB, Federation. whatever you want to call them. Yeah. The NJ- NGB.
0: NGB here in America, national governing bodies mm-hmm. um, of these sports. So even so so as you said before, Canada is government funded. Canadian NSOs are government mm-hmm. funded. Can you give us a little background on exactly how that works? Because again, considering here in the United States, most people think our NGBs are government funded because they all say USA in some capacity. Mm -hmm. But most people did not know, and I'm sure are finding out for the first time now that nope, all these are pretty much businesses that run by themselves. Yeah, they get some funding occasionally, but they are pretty much kind of, they're just doing their thing. So if you don't mind explaining what it's like in Canada for us.
1: Sure. So we have an organization called Sport Canada, and that's a government organization uh, because the government, you know, supports sport in a lot of different ways. Uh, That's just an area that they want to invest in, much like culture and arts. and, And if sport falls under our heritage section now, um so the way it works and and very briefly leading up to the vancouver 2010 olympics canada had not done very well in medals and so we didn't want to be embarrassed on our own uh home soil with not achieving a high number of medals and so what they started doing was investing in Um, something called Own the Podium, which is a program that started leading up to Vancouver. And that was really just how do we, how do we pinpoint our top athletes to make sure that we can bring medals home. So between Own the Podium and Sport Canada, that's where a lot of the money is pumped into the NSOs and then also through the Canadian Olympic Committee. So it's a little similar in the US as well, because a lot of the money that goes into the NGBs comes from all of the different. olympic rights and and on all the advertising and things like that that's where they get the majority of their money and then they'll often as you saw with usa rowing foundation they'll have their own foundations and their own corporate partnerships and and they're even you know of course better than we are at raising money in in our ngbs um some are good some are not so good but for us it's it's really been government funded funded and and should that ever go away one day, I don't know what would happen because the majority of their funds do come from that. Some of the bigger ones are more successful just in terms of, of their corporate partnerships, but still, there's a big reliance on government funding.
0: And as you were saying before, sometimes a little motivation to get good at something never hurt. And uh, yeah, having the sport, pay exactly. <laughs> <Fort laughs> attention to Canada for a couple of weeks, um, it's uh, definitely good motivation to say, hey guys, yeah,
1: exactly. There.
0: And hey, it worked exactly. out, you know, as you said, <laughs> kind of led to some really cool things along the way. And, and the, the thing I'm curious about, again, you know, with, with kind of the differences between the United States and, and Canada and, and how the sports are funded, and everything, I know you said you're not breaking the mold, but, you know, just kind of looking a couple miles south, kind of seeing what the United States was doing in some of these NGBs, no one really thought, like, all of these NGBs have some sort of charitable arm attached to them. No mm. one kind of, put that together like was that just not paid attention to did you guys just not care like i I don't know you probably don't have the answer i'm just kind of curious it's right there
1: i think some maybe looked at it you know like i said they're not all that great in the u.s too like there's some sports that are stronger and so i think it's just you know, and, and maybe too. If you look at the if you look at the U.S. in terms of just the way that they raise money in college athletics is so different from the way we do it in Canada too. And then you look elsewhere in the world, and it's Australia is just starting to look at what they could do with their alumni at the college level as well. Um, so I think it was just a very slow process. I, my favorite sport actually is to look at is, is rowing because rowing, and and it's it will be interesting to see how that trends because you know, there was the USA Rowing Foundation, then we did it with Rowing Canada, and then um, Row Australia now has their foundation. They've been raising money and uh, in the UK, they've been working on a foundation as well. And so I'm almost almost questioning what happens when you're getting philanthropists involved and are funding, you know, boats themselves and how that's even going to change competition on internationals. Uh, level if if countries are starting to really pursue the philanthropic side of it because you know where rowing may only get so much money from the government if you can bring in some wealthy philanthropists that are going to be able to fund a couple of boats and a couple of coaches that really elevate that to the to the next level and and other countries are going to have to get smart in building out that arm as well because they just simply won't be able to 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 keep up if they're solely relying on government funding which they are and um australia is making a big turn for it too i work a lot with a colleague in australia positioning things within our government actually to to change the their perception of sport because he's saying the same thing too you know if the government is going to be funding these nsos the NSOs should be proving that they're generating their own revenue as well you can't just sit back and you know put your hand out expecting mm-hmm. to to be supported all the time
0: that is a really good point too and yeah rowing is a very interesting sport you know kind of living it for a few months um never been in a boat and i'm totally okay saying oh.
1: that.
0: never <laughs> honestly want to be in a boat i'm not a really huge fan of boats so um you know it was very interesting there, talking to people there they're just like wait you've never rowed and i was like nope they're actually like okay we kind of appreciate that that's a good thing different <laughs> viewpoint different eyesight you know eye levels and all that so Let's let's get into relate a little bit more. You know, obviously it sounds like you guys are consulting all over the world, international at this point. If we're we're uh, down in Australia and Canada <laughs> and all other places. So, what exactly do you do? Give me your, you know, 30-second or a minute elevator pitch.
1: Well, essentially we build fund development and engagement strategies for organizations. That's really the gist of it. Um to help them become more sustainable and diversify their revenue. The and it changes all the time. So when we started, it was really about working with NSOs and now, you know, I work at all different levels of sports from grassroots all the way up, uh, work with individuals. So we've had, um, agents contact us just to help build philanthropic strategies for some of their athletes, uh, individuals that want to be able to, you know, change their investment and, and, and legacy into sport. And, uh, look at I kind of just w- try to zoom out and say how do we really build a more sustainable sports sector and 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 working even across different I so I do a lot of work in college athletics now as well because um, that still very much needs to be developed here uh, if you look again most of our universities maybe have one person dedicated to that so um, which was nice for me to get back into the college athletic space too, which I I, I miss. So it, it's through all levels of sport, which is fun. And then on the international side, um, I founded the Sport Philanthropy Collective, and that was really from after my time at George Washington University, realizing that there was a lot of professionals in the sport philanthropy space that needed to be able to band together and share resources just like Australia and I were doing because we're we have very similar sports systems and government system because of the commonwealth um, that we're able to work together and I think again coming back to the idea of teamwork and sport is that if they're having success with our government in Australia that sets precedent for us and then they can share certain things with us and and that allows us to be able to, to move things a bit more quicker through our government as well.
0: I love it. Yeah, quickly through the government. It's almost like a mm-hmm. little bit of an oxymoron there, but you got. I do- know, I know. As I said,
1: that it's <laughs> it's happened. To, it's to be honest, it's been happening quicker than I thought. So I'm pretty That's surprised. Good. But- all right, mm-hmm. all right.
0: Quicker than you thought. We'll take that. We'll take that. And I guess so. Like, what what is the breadth and depth of the work that you and the relate social capital team do? Like, does it go from high level consulting all the way down to boots on the ground? we're going to be yes. doing that for you. So like, well, I guess like I answered the question, but I want you to say, I guess it's better. Sure. You know,
1: so it really depends. A lot of our clients don't necessarily, they have limited resources oftentimes. So, um, it's everything from, you know, do you just want us to come in, build a strategy and then you're going to execute it. In some cases we're the fundraising department for them. So, you know, you had mentioned earlier, just, uh, with, with the rowing hall of fame it was literally like we're sending out the solicitations we're building the hall of fame we're handling all the alumni relations as if you have a full-time staff or little mini team within the department because most of these ngbs aren't in a position to hire a full-time person anyway they don't have the resources to do so so we can come in almost more as a part-time employee and do that Mm -hmm. for them so it really ranges from very, very high level to right down to, you know, literally getting coaches to sign thank you cards and get those out to donors.
0: Oh my goodness. So some, some of that <laughs> on the minute, but hey, you got to do what you got to do. I mean, you know yeah. what you're doing and you know how it works. And, and I guess it same goes for the, the colleges and, and all these other places. It's pretty much just if you guys can come in and help, you're, you're more than willing to do it.
1: Yes. Yes. And it's a little bit different. I think, you know, universities are a bit better equipped to deal with that. A lot of the times it's just being able to handle certain programming. So I'm building like a student, student athlete engagement program for one of my clients right now. Um, Oftentimes they like to use us as, you know, an outside voice to just come in and break up the tension and say, you know, this is what needs to be done. And then that way, if they really want to get mad at anyone, they can get mad at me and kind of keeps the peace within within the the department so uh so it really depends um i'd love to love to see eventually you know every single ng and ngb as almost said ngo uh, but ngb to be able to have their own uh fundraising team eventually that's what you you'd love to see in terms of sustainability so hopefully we'll get there one day
0: Cross our fingers and hopefully you can help them, <laughs> help them through that process. And I guess, so you brought up um, George Washington before mm-hmm. and there was a really cool event that unfortunately I was not able to go to, but it was down in the D.C. area. You did with mm-hmm. Alicia, uh, another, mm-hmm. another friend of the program, uh, John Balcom. He was awesome, too. Mm-hmm. So fantastic. Putting together these events, what is, I guess, the goal in doing something like that and trying to again just continue to spread the word of sports philanthropy cause marketing all these different opportunities within the within the industry
1: well when alicia and i decided to do it i think my, a lot of my motivation came from the fact that when i say i work in sport philanthropy nobody has any idea what that means and that's fine and then i explain it quickly uh, if they're interested so when that was my initial motivation. The other motivation was when I went to the George Washington program that is called the, you know, it's a sport philanthropy program. They focused a lot on the pro teams and their community relations and then athletes and their philanthropy. And as somebody who came up through college athletics and then now, um, NSOs, I felt, you know, I felt like, where do I fit in? Because so much of this program is just focused on, on these two areas of sport philanthropy. So, you know, my whole thing was let's actually talk about what all the arms of sport philanthropy are there, you know, whether it's uh, sport for development or it's, you know, grassroots sport organizations, or it's all the way up to our Olympic teams or, you know, yes, it is athlete, um, athlete and their foundations or their philanthropy it's also athlete activism like anytime you're using sport to do something good that's essentially sport philanthropy so let's bring people together and talk about all the different avenues of it so we could really start defining what sport philanthropy is and, and what that looks like as it starts to grow you know it was brought up in the in in the the summit you know someone said five years ago we wouldn't even have been able to get this many people in a room to talk about it and so it's really nice to see people coming together and sharing their experiences Uh, as somebody who came up through the fundraising side of it. I see that that's an area that lacks a lot in, in sports. It's really interesting. I find sport always tends to focus on the program side of what they're doing and then try to figure out how they get the money afterwards. Whereas most charities don't start that way. They don't go in building out their program side they always go in how are we going to actually fund any of these things and so that's what i'm trying to see on the sports side is let's let's worry about the money and the sustainable part before we start focusing so much on the program side of it
0: and that kind of makes sense right like why would you (laughs) like building something out and then being like well we're going to build this whole thing out and now we need this many dollars it probably Mm -hmm. makes more sense to say, how many Mm -hmm. dollars can we raise and what can we do with it right
1: Mm mm-hmm Yes, but I think what, and I mean, again, this is speculation because it's just my own observations. I think there's so many great sport organizations that are started because so many people see the benefit of it. And they are really great at doing community workshops or community programs. And that skill level is certainly there on the sports side of things to be able to say, hey, as a coach, or I can start this, I know that there needs to be a program in my neighborhood to be able to offer access to soccer for kids, for example, or whatever it may be. So I think it always starts from such a good place because sport people are so incredible at being able to develop that side of it. They just then forget about it the money part and how we're actually going to get funding or or rely maybe sometimes, like I said earlier, just on, on one funding partner. And and that sometimes ends up a little bit disastrous.
0: <laughs> just a little bit. Um, <laughs> one thing I found, so I've, I love working with charities in, in some capacity. I mean, I can, I can devote some of my time, obviously, having, mm-hmm. a, you know, as you said, we were talking about before. Um, the one thing I've found that's frustrating about working with charities is all one the people- thing? Oh, well, the, the number <laughs> one thing, all the people are there to help. They're all there because they're good human beings trying to do something. But man, as we were talking about with government before, everything is so slow. How do you, yes. being an entrepreneur in the space and, and from the sports world where everything moves very fast, how do mm-hmm. you kind of get people motivated to, hey, guys, let's let's pick up the speed? Like, you could have sent me three emails today. You didn't just have to send the one
1: mm-hmm.
0: at 50, which now you won't answer again until tomorrow at like 12. Mm-hmm. When we could have had this whole conversation done in a five minute phone call. Like, how do you deal with that aspect of it? Cause that's the thing I can't like, Oh, uh, I just try to move so fast. And I know that's not the <laughs> best way to do it all the time, but sometimes, man, we just got it just a little bit quicker. That's all.
1: Well, I'd love to see, how do I say it? I'd love to see that talent pool, really try to diversify in the charitable sector, because I think, you know, again, even before sport philanthropy was even on my radar, working as somebody who came up through a business side of things, now working in the charitable sector, I realized that it was a lot of people that had different backgrounds. Um, and again, they all were being brought together on, on their ultimate passion or goal of being able to give back. You know, I hate the term nonprofit. profit I really do because to me, there's it's a social profit because we do have to make a profit. At the end of the day, we have to be able to budget and, and, and actually make those budgets and hit our targets. As you said earlier, like at the end of the day, yes, we still need to be able to raise $18 million or we need to be able to cut costs and we need to be proactive and we need to be able to operate as a business would trying to make a profit. It's just, we reinvest that profit back into the community. And so um, I think it's getting better. I think oftentimes the charitable sector really just started off the backs of volunteers and it was just people who were able to give time where they could and they weren't necessarily educated in certain areas, which is fine as, as people learn and grow. Um, but I, I, you are starting to see, I think a lot of people end up in the charitable space almost like as a second career. There weren't a lot of people like myself who studied it and went into it, you know, knowing that that's what they wanted to make their career out of. So it's, it's really a lot of work. I mean, that's something that we're working on in Canada right now too, is that the charitable sector, uh, you know, generates so much revenue and it's just kind of not really regulated in a way. It's kind of like, it's very similar in the U S it's very similar around the world too, that it just has such, you know, it's, it's, it's one of our largest industries, but we almost look at it like it's a feel good thing. So it doesn't necessarily need to be as regulated as the business sector might be, which is, is completely wrong. So I think people are really starting to shift and look at the way that they're, that that's changing, but I agree. It is, it could be very slow and very tedious and, you know, it often is just a result of people are just under resourced and overworked and, and, um, and again, I think have never, really helped in some cases been held you know had their feet held to the fire much like you would you know maybe have your job on the line on the the corporate side of things
0: so go back to that regulation for a second what exactly Mm -hmm. is not regulated and what could be more regulated because again this (laughs) is not my area of expertise i'm definitely kind of curious
1: well the it's it's weird so in canada the charitable sector really you know, if we look at where we fall under, we fall under the the, the Canada Revenue Agency. So it's kind of weird that it's just the the tax office is what is who regulates us, rather than actually, you know, falling under. I mean, there's been a lot of different suggestions of, of where it can look like, but if we're generating so much revenue, it just seems a little bit silly that it's that it's really just the the you know our national tax. Um, office that that is overseeing what we do because then it's always just looking at the black and white you know yes you can give a receipt for this no you can't give a receipt for that and it just becomes more so of a tax issue rather than do we need to have another breast cancer charity might be a really good question to ask like do we really need to be investing in this kind of research do we really need to be and i think there just needs to be a lot more accountability in the space um you know you you see so many charities i think we have in canada eighty eight thousand registered charities so you know and, and and the the cra will either shut them down or um you know, give them warnings and things like that. But I think there just needs to be a lot more accountability in terms of actually saying, okay, like, what are you doing? How are you trying to make an impact? How does that actually fit into, you know, the landscape within Canada? And is it something that we really need? Is it, you know, there's just a lot of things that is just completely unregulated that sometimes is worrisome for me. And and that's, um that's something that that came out of this special uh senate um, on the charitable sector they've been reviewing that all and i think one of the goals is to move it outside of uh, out out of the the canada revenue agency and put it elsewhere
0: you brought that to the senate
1: uh no i brought um my case for sport philanthropy to the senate which was to have sport considered a charitable purpose because it's not
0: what was your argument i want to hear
1: so if you can. very quickly, <laughs> I'm trying to to not, to not bore everyone. Essentially, in most countries, um, to be deemed, this is particularly true within the Commonwealth, is that to be deemed charitable, uh, especially in Canada, you, there's four major categories. And it's education, relief of poverty, religion, and then other. And other is the arts, health foundations, and things like that. So technically, in Canada, you can use sport, to achieve one of those things, but sport itself is not considered charitable. And that was a problem that when it, when it came up through the legal system, sport was deemed, like the playing of sport is not charitable. But if you look at all of the outcomes of sport, it is charitable. So what I've been trying to do is say, you know, how come you can, how come you can donate to a museum and say that that's charitable, but you can't donate to a local rowing club and say that that's charitable? And how do we bring that up to the same level playing field? Because right now the sport organizations that can raise money, like our NSOs have a very weird status and it's very similar to every country, just like the U S and how the rowing foundation can exist is because it's amateur sport, but it makes it very difficult for people to raise money or for other sport organizations to get charitable status. So just really trying to make sport recognized as charitable much like the arts are is, is what I'm trying to do. And that's what they're trying to do in, in Australia as well.
0: I don't think that was boring. I think that's super insightful. And it's really <laughs> interesting because I did not know that, that, I just assumed to be totally honest with you that you could. Um, and now you're trying to change the world. I think that's awesome, Sam. That's really cool. Um, I we'll know see. we're a couple of minutes over, so I hope uh, you don't have, I hope no, you didn't have okay. a call scheduled for a couple minutes ago, but no. uh just two final questions. One, with, I'm not an economist, but if the whole world shuts down for a couple months, it doesn't sound like it's going to be good. So with this being a potential economic downturn, how are you viewing this and what are you doing to kind of get ahead to make sure that the clients that you do have are can sustain, especially the Olympic ones? Again, now we mm-hmm. have kind of a year to raise that money. Mm-hmm. What are you doing in case of, or, you know, break the glass in case of, you know, an an economic emergency or or an economic downturn?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, in 2008 is when I was actually doing my post-grad and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm (laughs) studying to get into the charitable sector in this terrible economic climate and donations actually increased during the economic downturn. And uh, I think that just goes to show that, you know, I think that the knee-jerk reaction is that nobody's going to give, but actually, people wanted to give to help out others because we realized how bad it was. So I'm hoping we'll see the same trends now. And and as you can see, I think um, there have been so many different initiatives, and not just within sport, but so many different initiatives where people are stepping up to the plate and. Uh, and being able to help out and again you're and and for examples in sport you're seeing it with someone like Zion who said you know I'm going to step up and support people's salaries and you know kind of just started the whole trend where yes everybody had to step up and it was great because um, you know it's a bit embarrassing when a 19 year old is the one that's that's you know stepping forward and, and and saying you know this is not okay when you have owners that are making a lot more money than he is so it was nice to see because there was a lot of um, corporate shaming going on, uh, where people were, you know, and, and it just started to trend. And now if you were the only team not doing it, you were sort of forced into having to, to, to take care of it and give back. So I really do think we'll make it through that way. Um, I think it's just going to look a lot different. What's difficult right now is, you know, we had so many different events planned and, and opportunities to engage people, to bring people into like Olympic sendoff parties and, um, we were doing especially with canoe kayak canada we had a really interesting women paddling program that we wanted to get started which is now going to go on the back burner so i think it's just having to reimagine what that will look like and and hoping that you know within a couple months things will go back to normal um so it's nice we have all this extra planning time but we'll see i'm pretty confident in the fact that things will maybe take a little bit of a hit but in dark times people always want to help and and so that that doesn't change too much that's
0: awesome so a couple things there one i don't know if you knew that i was a really big duke fan but that's pretty cool so i appreciate (laughs) it he's incredible um and yeah when even my girlfriend was like what isn't zion like like 20 years old why is he coming out donating well He's, in, he's in a, just an awesome person. So we'll start with mm-hmm. that. He does have uh, also a, a really nice contract from Nike. So that, that doesn't mm-hmm. help, hurt. But it, you're right. It, it was kind of embarrassing seeing this 19 year old come up as one of the first people to be like, yeah, you know, I'll donate, you know, 30 days worth of salary to all these, all these people. Mm-hmm. Which is great. And then you, you subsequently saw all the NBA teams and then all these other athletes do it, which is great. So, hey, if he's one of the, the pioneers to it, I'm all for it. Let's go, Duke. Um, and then I did not know that the charitable giving goes up during economic downturns but when you say it like hey we all know something's wrong out there it's very clear Mm -hmm. people still want to help people still can help certain people can still help and want to i think that that's awesome and yeah i agree with you i do think you know in this we're gonna get hit it's gonna stink you know us being both in the olympic space it's kind of gonna stink for Mm -hmm. a couple months but i think after that the opportunities are even bigger and, and greater which i think is really cool so the last question i have for you sam is what is you know pie in the sky dream view what does relate social capital look like In the most perfect of worlds
1: i think oh that's a great question um for sure i know i want to be able my biggest thing is really to try and have sport recognized as charitable around the world that would be a huge victory um but i think as things start to trend towards uh you know different areas of of sport philanthropy it's really just building up the capacity in that space um, you know i 'd love to see more people involved I have students asking me now, how do you get into that career, which I think is really exciting because that was never a question i've been I had been asked um, before, and so for me, you know if every single sport organization was able to behave like a charity does and have their own fundraisers and and really put their resources into that and be able to have a more sustainable um, organization in terms of actually generating their own revenue, that would be incredible. That would be to a point where, you know, if God forbid sport Canada went away and you couldn't get any more money from the government that you'd be okay. Because, you know, I think in most countries, when you look at the charitable giving, most people give to kids and health. And the way I see sports is that, you know, if we could keep kids out of hospitals, that would be great. And how do we keep kids out of hospitals? We keep them healthy mentally and physically. And how do we keep them healthy mentally and physically? And it typically goes back to sport in some capacity. So that's where I think, you know, sport philanthropy actually would be one of the greatest areas you can give to. And I think a lot of people don't just, don't really just sort of connect those dots and, and see that way. So that's what I'd love to see.
0: It is a great way of looking at it, right? Keeping kids active is going to keep them healthier. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, that'll help in in multiple capacities. Mm -hmm. I have people on here all the time to talk about how sports has helped them from a mental aspect, from a team building aspect, from a community aspect, and all those things can happen. And from a health aspect, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. And then I I know I said that was the last question, but you you said some great things. So I just have a couple (laughs) of follow-up points. One. Canada was the first team to drop out of the Olympics They're, they're going to be the first uh, country potentially to recognize sports as philanthropy. And then, you know, the domino effect from there. So look at that. We're mm-hmm. already changing the world. We'll see. So just wanted, we'll see. Just wanted to, I'll cross my fingers <laughs> for you and knock on some wood. Um, and you answered it throughout. And that's always one thing I like to make sure of through these interviews is, is usually not explicitly asking it, but how did you get into what you're doing and what's the mindset that you're utilizing moving forward? And you answered both those questions kind of throughout, but explicitly. When someone does reach out to you and say, how do you get into this? How did you start doing this? What do you normally, other than going over your entire story again, what is that normal answer that you usually give them?
1: I usually say, just say yes, because I could never have planned this route for myself. You know, it's funny because I think things have completely come full circle for me, but I never in a million years would have ever thought that I could have built this career for myself. Um, you know, working in sport, philanthropy, and then having my own business. Like those are my three favorite things. And somehow they all worked out together again. But like I said, I never, it was just never on the radar. And so I think you just have to be open to things. You have to just, you know, really pursue what sets your soul on fire in terms of, you know, if you feel a spark or something interests you, like pay attention to that. And then try to follow it wherever you can because I found particularly when I worked at the university students have so much pressure on themselves like they feel you know I have, I have some in my office that say you know I have to do this, this 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 and I said you know I'm 10 years older than you and I still don't know what I'm doing with my life you know like was starting a business the smartest thing and leaving my cushy job at the university I don't know I don't know you know it's you can't plan that you have to take risks. And, you know, had I boxed myself in, I don't even know where I would be right now. So I think you just have to be able to follow it. Um, You know, people told us we were crazy on so many different levels. at so many different times throughout this process. So you just really have to be, um, I think, cognizant of just listening to, to what, sounds right and and what really makes you excited and and you know what I always say too, like knock on wood if if things ever you know went south or things changed at least I tried and you know our business turned four in January and it's been a wild ride for sure I've learned so much and I've grown so much so even from that I'm grateful for that experience and you know, I think, I don't know what the future will look like, but I think, you know, just judging by my path, I think it just, it just changes and more doors open and maybe I'll find something that's completely different that really interests me and I'll pursue that. And I think it's it's really important to, to encourage others to do the same and not feel that they have to have it all figured out by the time they're 23, because that's very stressful. and, And I would hate to see people feel like that.
0: Oh, my goodness, Sam, that is incredible advice. Uh, I think we're going to leave it there. Samantha Rogers, co founder and principal at relate social capital all around incredible human being changing the world changing the laws. Let's get it. Thank you so much, Sam. I appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Samantha Rogers. As I said, just an all around great human being. So I'm grateful I get to call her a friend. Um, Please make sure to follow her and relate on all of their socials. I think everything should be in the show notes. Please give us a five-star review anywhere that you can. I would be super grateful if you did something like that. And I really do appreciate you giving me some of your time. So I think we don't get more of. So thank you for giving me yours. And I hope you make it a wonderful day. Yes.